Hi there. We have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. So everyone, thank you very much for coming into the recovery room. We call it the recovery room because the four people in your shop now have all recovered from anxiety, but we also um, call it the recovery room because everyone else in the room is on their own journey to anxiety recovery. So if you just want to give a little introduction about yourself before we get on with the questions, Kim, you're up first. Good morning, everybody in California, and good evening to all of you folk. Um, I am Kimberly Quinlan. I'm a marriage and family therapist. I specialize in OCD and eating disorders and body-focused repetitive behaviors, and I am the host of Your Anxiety Toolkit. Fantastic. Josh? Hi, my name is Joshua Fletcher. I am a psychotherapist based in the UK. I specialize in working with anxiety disorders and anxiety-related conditions, as well as other things like depression and things, and, and things like that. I've also co-written a best-selling book with Dean, who is in the top left-hand corner. Hey, Andrew, you're up. Let's go. <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, I'm Drew Linsalata. I am the creator and host of the Anxious Truth podcast. The name of the podcast is called The Anxious Truth. And uh, I am a podcaster, an author, and a teacher on the subject of anxiety disorders and recovery for many, many years, because I, I used to be you, too. So... Fantastic. So guys, I don't know who wants to kick off first. What have people been asking? Uh, someone just said they've just got the book. So which book is it? Is it Drew's book? Is it Untangle Your Anxiety? There's so many books to get. Maybe it's all of them. Get, get them all. Get them yeah, all. Yeah. We, we actually met it. Drew was talking about we should do it as a bundle. A and bundle. when you've got yours, Kim, we should do like a recovery room bundle. That'd be cool. <laughs> oh, we told um, you do that. Yeah, he wants to go first. He's got. I. 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 Not. I didn't. There's a couple of questions, but I, I need to go and find them first. But if anyone's got some more pertinent I, I can, questions, I yeah. can go. I've got a ton of questions. So, and all most of them were coming off of posts um, from this week. Um, the first one is actually mine because my favorite um, post on the weekend was, and I'm curious just to know, what is the best advice you've ever been given? Um, I'll, I'll kick start. So regarding anxiety, I'm, I'm going to stick on point. Um, so it's probably not the best ever advice I've been given, but <laughs> for my anxiety disorder, 100% when I was going through it. And that was my friend who I speak about, um, who really showed me the light, showed me that it wasn't just myself going through all these scary symptoms that guess what? Other people go through it as well. And him um, almost like wearing my shoes and telling me the symptoms I was feeling and just making me feel more normal at the time. So that was definitely the best advice that kick-started my recovery. And I can't thank him enough for it. Well, I'll jump in. I think the best of, well, again, keeping it on the topic of anxiety recovery, I think the best advice I got overall, like little bit of advice was not advice. It was a book. It was a therapist that I saw for a very short time because I didn't need to see him for more than that. And he handed me a, uh, a Claire Weeks book called Hope and Help for Your Nerves. 
way back pre-internet 1986 he gave me the book and said yeah. here read this it'll explain everything and i was like yeah all right fine and it did mm -hmm. so like uh yeah that was probably the best bit of advice that i got from anybody along the path for recovery and it was way 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 long ago uh, so. what stage of your recovery was that Dre? was that right at the beginning oh, or yeah, that was in the beginning. That was like, I still didn't even know what was wrong with me at the time. So I was just fortunate enough to find a therapist here on Long Island who understood anxiety disorders and said, oh, yeah, you have, it sounds like a panic disorder and you're developing agoraphobia. So here, read this book. And I canceled my next appointments with him and didn't, I never, I didn't need to finish with him. So he put himself out of business a little bit, but it was a good bit of advice because <laughs> I learned so much from good that book. Therapist, so. that Good therapist. Yeah. Right, absolutely. That, that's the yeah. therapist who's knowledgeable on anxiety disorders, which there are plenty of therapists knowledgeable on anxiety disorders, but not enough. Um, the best the best advice regarding anxiety that I've ever had was in that same stage where I was, trying, like Drew, trying to find help, trying to search for help. I didn't know what's wrong with me. I'm having all this derealization, depersonalization, racing thoughts. I didn't feel like me. I didn't feel like this was my reality. I felt sick. I couldn't leave my room, became agoraphobic. Uh, the best advice I ever had was just speaking to someone and they just turned around and said, oh, that sounds like just anxiety. I was like, what? And I'd never really like related to the word anxiety before i just thought it meant oh i'm worried about my exams or i'm worried about a first date but when someone actually explained what anxiety was and that i wasn't going crazy that's the best the best advice i've had in a, in a single sentence was you're not going crazy it's just anxiety and it was that very sentence that kick-started my recovery and then finding claire weeks's book i actually read paul david's book first and Whilst I don't agree with a lot of it, the first two chapters were just bang on. They were like, oh, I feel less lonely. Um, and then I went on and wrote a book that was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why we had him tied up in the basement last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, um, you Kim? Uh, the best advice um, from mental health perspective was that there is no emotion that will hurt you. That was a, that has been continuously a game changer for me, even today. Like even when I'm like, oh, this is I can't do it. I'm like, there's no emotion that I can't tolerate, and that is so gold for me. Mm, I love that. That's a yeah. good one. I like that one. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next um, question, Kim. Okay. Um, so this is this is I'll give you the backstory. So um, I thought this was such an interesting concept. So it's less of a question and more of just a topic I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Is someone I comment in one of my posts of this week about how it was actually I think it was the best advice if I if I remember correctly. Someone had said the best thing that was just eye opening for them was to recognize that they're not as important as they think they are. And then there was a lot of discussion around this in terms of like, it kind of, I think what the, the context is, they were saying like, it helped beat out this idea that this person had to be perfect and that their emotions had to be important and their thoughts had to be important. And of course, some people felt that this was a little shaming, like what? I'm not as important as I think I am. But I just wanted to pose that as a topic for you guys to talk about in terms of how we um, place importance on ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings. 
definitely. I, I'm going to um, go back to just to just to prove that I listen to everything that my um, co-author Josh says. Um, he mentioned in one of his recovery <laughs> <That's> rooms. <laughs> he, he mentioned in one of the recovery rooms that in one of his therapy sessions, he actually took one of his clients to either a supermarket or somewhere and started acting silly. I think you said you did. You start like uh, shouting a song or. I rolled around on the floor shouting and yeah, just to show what really other people think of that situation because um, for his client at the time, that would have been the world to him. He would, he, he would be so anxious and nervous about, about what everyone's thinking and the reality was that what no, nobody really what did the judge. No, maybe one or two. Most people are just getting on with their day. Right? Yeah. No one cares. I, I thought I thought that was a really, really good example. Yeah, you're plus they've seen you do that like a hundred times. That's just any grocery shop. <laughs> They're like, there's that guy again. Let's <laughs> go there, guy again. <laughs> it's like everyone shows up on Friday. Where's the guy? Right, Who's just the guy? Josh, rolling like... guy. He's supposed to be here. <laughs> Holding an eggplant. Just rolling on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's one of the, like, what Dee was saying, like, you're, you're not your thoughts. Uh, still writing this book on intrusive thoughts, so I'll, I'll need to get the Kimberly Quinlan seal of approval on it. But it's like, um, these intrusive thoughts, like, you're not your thoughts. They're just things that you observe, and you can choose to give the ones importance, and so you can choose to give the other ones that aren't. That is you. You are... Your thoughts, I mean, we have, what is it, uh, seven and a half thousand thoughts a day. A lot of them are shite. And you can choose. And, and how, many do you actually, yeah. how many do you actually remember? Do you know what I mean? There's probably 7,000 of them that you don't oh, even know. Key, key, key memory is five to 10. Uh, is five to 10 thoughts that you remember really in a day. And I thought, what? <laughs> really? Is that it? But actually, think of when you go to bed tonight, think about, try to think of how many thoughts you had. Mm. and the ones that are really significant you remember about five to ten um i a metacognitive therapist told me that and i'm just gonna believe them because they they know they know their shit um but was, yeah i mean it's you're not your thoughts you're not your emotions that like just because you have a reaction to something there's a complex network of associations that are going on there it doesn't mean anything and so yeah like try not to define yourself by your anxiety which is ironic coming from a guy who's named his account Anxiety Josh. I'm literally <laughs> defining myself by anxiety. But, like, but yeah, you know what I mean? That's a, that's a good point right there. <laughs> I, I take it to mean that like you're, you're not as important as you think you are. I, I think it's a great, actually a really empowering thing because I like to talk about the selfish nature of disordered anxiety. Like you're not selfish, but disordered anxiety absolutely is because no matter what's going on in the known universe, it will immediately turn it back into, well, how will that make me feel? Like, I'm sorry that you've been shot in the forehead guy next to me, but how will that make me feel? Is this going to trigger me? So I think it's good to call that out. And like, that's that magnification, that distortion and that need for anxiety to say, well, how is this going to impact me? always me always me always me always me so you're not as important as you think you are is i would probably reframe that as well your anxiety will try to make everything about itself just be mm -hmm. aware of that and don't let it do that so that's my take on that right
I know for yeah. me with my eating disorder recovery to really recognize that I'm not important and not special was a relief of like, no one cares. Like no one cares what my body looks like. I I've care. Known that, I've known that for ages. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for, for me, it was, I remember how, how that was like a major kick in the pants and a little bit of a scout, like a bruise, like, oh, oh, like, you know, like surely I am important a little bit, but, but it's helpful. It's not a shaming thing to say. It's not a, it's not a way of depreciating or devaluing you. It's just sort of giving you permission not to take yourself so seriously. It's a bit like, like, well, like Dean, like Dean says, it's like, it's actually relieving when the spotlight isn't on you. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like the spotlight, but not 24 seven. Right. So if the yeah. spotlight is on you and, 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 and you're eating disorder or whatever, and when, when you actually, actually, the spotlight isn't on you anymore, it's not that important. That is actually quite relieving. It's like mm -hmm. the world isn't just waiting for you to make a mistake. They don't give a shit and that's okay. You can be flawed and actually being flawed is fun. Imagine if you went through your entire life being perfect and then you died. You boring. It's girl. exhausting. Yeah, he's so boring. Like, <laughs> I'm perfect in everything I've ever done. Boring. <laughs> Agreed. Um, Dean, how many questions? Are we doing the fast-paced one today, or how do you want to do it? Whatever you guys want to do. But if you've got a few more, go ahead. Mm -hmm. sleep, <laughs> sleep anxiety tips, please. Oh, we're on the tips. We are on the tips. Tips and tricks. I always get asked every year in the UK, all these organizations, private organizations, third party, government organizations, universities, and, 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 and companies that always get, hey, Josh, can you come and be part of a sleep panel, uh, a sleep <laughs> expert? I'm like, yeah, I'll come and you've sleep obviously with not <laughs> seen me before. Like, I'm the worst sleep panel expert ever because I go on and say two lines and sit there and look smug. Like, I just like, if you're struggling with sleep, Stop trying. You know, this is what I say to people that, that, that have insomnia with me. It's like, okay, what are you doing to try and sleep? Oh, everything. I've chamomile tea, done this, smoked a joint, read, read a really boring book, can't sleep, can't sleep. I was like, because you're trying to sleep. You're resisting insomnia itself. So what you need to do is, right, your homework is to go stay up all night. Purposely stay up all night. Plan to stay up all night. No screens, though, but, like, do some puzzles, do some reading, uh, paint a wall, do something really productive. Don't purposely don't go to sleep all night. And every time when I work with insomniacs, they get to about three, four, five a.m. and then they're just like, uh, and I'm like, no, your, your your aim is to stay up all night. And they get to about five a.m. and they fall asleep. Want to know why? Because they gave up the resistance to sleep. Also, people fear sleep because they think oh if i, I need to sleep otherwise I'll, i won't function of course you'll function do an all-nighter i did so you could do an all-nighter and still function the next day okay you won't be 100 percent, but you can do it you're not going to go insane because you didn't get some sleep last night and stuff like that everyone sees sleep as the panacea of, of things and, and i bring this when people invite me like it's overrated. If you don't like, if you can't sleep, get up and do something else until you're ready to go to sleep. And that's something that's been tried and tested that I work with. You know, people don't want to hear it sometimes. It's like, well, stop trying. So is that, you, is that you saying that people, people don't need seven hours? I mean, in the short run, in the long run, yeah. But like, if you were, when I was in the midst of anxiety and panic and agoraphobia, I must have averaged about two hours of sleep a night for a whole year. And I'm all right. 
You know, I, I'm I okay. Don't it didn't I kill me, did it? You know, and, and the same, like, he, he, people see it and you always get the same scaremongering headlines, like people who don't get sleep die early. It's like, well, they could don't. You know, like, just like, wh who's saying that? Who knows a relative who's like, oh, yeah, uh, Uncle Paul died because he didn't sleep enough. <laughs> No one ever he was tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He died of being tired. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor Uncle Paul. Yeah. Poor Uncle Paul. What killed Auntie Carol? Oh, she was stressed. That's another one you hear as well. It's like, no one says they die from stress. You know, like, like mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's a weird one. But that's my tip. Stop trying. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I'd, I'd just add on to that. Um, a couple of things that helped me. It wasn't really, again, it wasn't putting myself to sleep and trying things. So it wasn't like lavender and things like that. But I had a nice routine where I'd have a bath and that would really relax me. Something I do every night. Um, and yeah, if I woke up in the middle of the night. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Waiting. Listening to Drew's podcast in the bath while reading. No, no, no. She looks so sweet, doesn't she? Yeah. Do not believe it. I was trying so hard not to laugh. Okay. I know you were. <laughs> Sorry, Dean. Um, Sorry. No. <laughs> and then, uh. yeah, so if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll, ju I'll just grab a book or something like that. Something like Josh said, no screens. Um, the blue screen really isn't good for you when you're trying to get to sleep. But don't try and force yourself to sleep. Get up. Um, yeah. Uh, get up, do and something it, mindful. And if you really want to go to sleep quickly, why don't you read a book by Charles Linden or Dennis Sinsek, the anxiety guy? Because it doesn't really have any good content, but it will bore you into a coma. And that's what I also recommend. Sorry. Spicy, Josh. I hope you're saying that. Ooh. All right. I'm gonna, ooh, ooh, okay. Uh, so it's no, been a long no time. I, yeah, I can see. I, the only thing I would add on the sleep thing, I should never give sleep advice ever. I mean, you guys know I'm, I don't. I sleep four hours a night. That's just me. I'm a freak when it comes to sleep. I don't need a lot of sleep. But I will say that the biggest problem that I see with sleep is yes, people try and force it, and they get so afraid of how they feel that tired is not permissible. I cannot be sleep deprived because then I will feel differently, and if I feel differently all bets are off. That will trigger my panic. I'm afraid of how I feel. So feeling tired will make me, I, people say it all the time. Well, I didn't sleep. So now my anxiety will go through the roof. No, no, you're just afraid of being tired. So just recognize two things. You're afraid of how you feel and tired is a way to feel that you don't like and have associated with being afraid of that. And the second thing is that sleep is not, I know a lot of people get stuck on like the perfect recovery. Oh my God, I know that I need, I need a lot of sleep to recover. I won't recover if I can't sleep. And that's just flat out not true. So, I mean, it doesn't hurt, of course, but that, that fear of like, if I don't sleep enough or I don't sleep eight, nine hours a day, or I have broken sleep, or it's not the best sleep, I'll panic tomorrow and I'll never recover. Both of which are really kind of distortions that you don't need to buy into. That's right. a really good answer. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll share that my, um, I used to have a lot of anxiety around sleep because when I'm tired, I cry really easily. And because I, as a clinician, I didn't want to be like crying all day long to, in front of my clients. Um, I get really easily to tears, um, which is very strange. But what was so interesting is when I had my first child, I was forced not to sleep. So I wouldn't sleep, get up, go to work, have to function, 
cried a little here and there, tolerated that, did it again tomorrow. And through that process, I learned I could tolerate very few hours of sleep. So for me, it was exposure by default and it was really effective. That's really interesting. Um, I'll, I'll kick start with a couple of questions. The first one is, I'm in the middle of a crisis at work. My work cannot know about my anxiety. Um, what advice do you have um, that I can mask it so other people can't see it? So I thought that was really interesting to bring to the table. That's a really good question. Um, yeah. I'll go. Oh, yeah, oh no, Josh is go, yeah. going. Go, no, Josh. I'm consider my answer first before I, I, I should probably do that more. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first, challenge the idea that they can't know. I'm wondering if that's your rules or. To, to disclose a mental illness, right? Particularly some military positions, some police you know, positions um, that you have to disclose all your disorders ahead of time as a part of the job um, onboarding. So, so my first question is, is that your rule or is that their rule? Um, is there some stigma and shame impacting that decision? And if you're, in fact it is something that your... Um, you're not allowed to disclose to them. You you may want to be, go through some kind of. I know you guys may agree or disagree, but what I have found to be really helpful, particularly when doing you know social anxiety exposures or presentation exposures, is to put your attention just on your breath, um, because you can handle any anxiety, and you can have any. Drew, explain this is. You can just breathe through it and continue on and do what you were doing. Um, if your attention is on something, whether it's your breath or something else, it's likely that, again, similar to what Josh was saying, the more you're trying not to have fear, the more you're going to have it. But if you can put your attention on, you know, something that can sometimes help you, you know, still engage with your daily life. It's mm -hmm. good. Perfect. I'll add that I think they probably won't know. I mean, if there's some sort of formal screening process like Kim was talking about, that might be a different animal. But if your worry is that you're at work and people are going to see that you are anxious, mm -hmm. I can tell you that they probably will not unless you draw attention to it by leaving, calling in sick, avoiding, running out of the room. Like, then they're going to know that something is up. But that's that thing that comes back to, like, you think you can't handle it, so you think you have to leave or avoid the situation or escape somehow. But... My experience is my own personal experience and also hearing from so many people who will say, you know, I thought I was such a mess or I will often tell people like turn on the camera when you have a panic attack, even if you don't show it to anybody and then watch it back and see what it is. And they'll be like, wow, I didn't look. I thought I was a mess. I didn't really look that bad. So the odds are that they won't even know unless you draw attention to it with those safety and escape behaviors, which I do understand are hard to not engage. in. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's really the avoidance of anxiety that people notice. Suddenly you're not there every day. Suddenly you're leaving early. Suddenly you're away from your desk a lot or you're, you know, you're taking frequent breaks because you have to like escape and get it together. That's when they'll see it. Otherwise, odds are they won't. Yeah. For me, well, that's a good, good, good answer. Uh, for me, when you, uh, it's, it obviously depends on the line of work that you're in as well. Um, for me, it's a bit like, you know, we live in the real world. 
if you've got understanding employers, um, have a word in confidence with maybe your line manager or whatever. When I was diagnosed, when I first got di diagnosed with my anxiety disorder, I was so appreciative of my work. They were amazing. They were like they were like the ideal employers. You know, they Did were you like. Tell them straight away. I, well, they knew because I had my first ever panic attack in work. Wow. Uh, that that whole dissociation thing, and mm. I went, "Why is a sheet?" And they were like, "You're not well." Like they could see quite well. Like that that first ever panic attack. That mm. what the hell's going on here? And they so I was they could see straight away, and I'm a very confident person. You know, I always have been, and they could see straight away something wasn't quite right. Um, obviously, I didn't know what was happening to me, so I was okay to open up to certain people in my work, and that made going back to work a lot easier. Now, if you can do that, or you have colleagues, or or that work environment is is comfortable enough for you to share that, then that's great. But unfortunately, in some work environments, that isn't the case. We are in the real world. A lot of my clients actually work with prejudiced people where, you know, they'll do mental health awareness week, you know, to tick some boxes, but secretly, deep down, they're pieces of shit who can't be bothered with your mental health. And that's where it becomes a bit difficult. And that's where you've got to take the kind of stoic Lancelata approach, where it's like, do it anyway. Really test those kind of, um, beliefs that they can see your anxiety and and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you can make it easy for yourself and do it, yeah. And 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 like Kimberly said, challenge that belief that you need to hide it from people. When I went back to work, I'd be like, I'm challenging my anxiety. So if I don't feel that myself, it's because I'm challenging my anxiety. And they were, like, yeah, cool, whatever. I owned it. I went in and told people what I was doing, you know. But I owned it. I wasn't like, pandering to them. I was like this is what I'm doing, you know, get used to it. Same. But it depends Same. on your personality. I've been a gobshite all my life and I'll tell people, but it's, if you can, just yeah, assess properly what it is at work. And I know not all workplaces are ideal and I wish I could sit here and say, your work will look after you, you know. I wish I could sit here and say schools will look after you, but I've heard horror stories even in the last year about children in schools and not understanding mental health. So, you know, it, look at who's around you and, and, and make a, an informed decision yourself. No, definitely. And completely agree with you. Um, that really worked for me because obviously anxiety disorders, everything is inward. So being able to tell the people around me and work really helped and helped to reduce the anxiety at the time. Um, the next question is, how do you stop replaying traumatic experiences? Um, I'll throw I'll throw this out to the two therapists first, and then Drew, if you if you have any information. Do you want to go, Kimberly, or do, do you want me no. to throw you it? So, yeah. Again, and I, we mentioned this in the previous slide. Um, intrusive thoughts and PTSD are separate. So PTSD. What happens is some people, the vast minority of people, that go through trauma. Um. Uh, something, something traumatic a memory gets stuck several memories get stuck in in the hippocampus part of your brain so usually we go around our days stuff happens we go to sleep and when we sleep the, uh, the brain files it in the right places and we get on with our day that's why we always feel better after sleep sometimes it's like all right yeah that's there that's there that's there 
Um, that's why things like grief and stuff get easier over time because when you hit enter sleep, right, so important, you know, it puts it in the right places. But with trauma, sometimes in the hippocampus area, memories and experiences become lodged or stuck. Uh, this is why you see people like uh, people from uh, from war times in the trenches. They've seen a, a colleague get maimed or blown up, and that's all. And then you see them waking up in the middle of the night because the memories are in the hippocampus. They've not been quite stored away, or a loud noise triggers their threat response because it feels very real. And this is why you get things like, um, do, do you guys ever disagree? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're all threat. We all hold hands and dance around the tree. Uh, but, uh, but this is what happens with traumatic memories. And that's why they're treated a bit different. And so what you need to do is be like, if it's a traumatic memory, work with a trauma-informed therapist. Um, because what they need to do is, Dis dislodge that memory so it can be filed away there's a difference between having an intrusive memory of, of something like oh panic and actually having like a ptsd intrusive flashback when you like feel like you're there and having a pure flashback and feeling like it that needs to be treated a bit differently and that can apply to any trauma sexual assault bullying violence car accidents um uh, natural disasters watching the Real Housewives of New Jersey, anything that associates with that, and you can you can dislodge it. I was just I was just going to ask Josh, um, is it what's the the specific um, definition of trauma then, and is there different categories of it? Well, there's some that makes you really scared and for a prolonged amount of time. That's trauma. Um, PTSD only occurs in the vast minority of people that go through trauma. Um, usually people who freeze in response to fear and then the brain doesn't really have enough time to to, to, to process it and it gets stuck. Um, just because you've been through trauma does not mean you have PTSD. Uh, I don't have PTSD, but I've been through a lot of trauma. The trauma memories do still affect me, but not as bad as someone who has PTSD. Right. 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 Yeah. And I agree. So there is there are particular treatments for different types of PTSD, one of them being what we call prolonged exposure. So if there is a memory specifically, if the um, so we, with PTSD, there's a criterion A and, and other criterions. And the criterion A is like, have you been through a life threatening event? Right. Um, you know, a victim of war, a rape victim, you've witnessed a, a death, that kind of thing. Um, now, and like Josh was saying, in the world of trauma, we consider there to be like capital T trauma, like those events. And then there's little T trauma, which are the small things that we all like no one really gets out of life without being going through one small T trauma. Right. And for many people, that is having a mental illness. Right. Going through and having OCD or severe agoraphobia and so forth is a small is a, a little T trauma for sure. Um, what we can do is you can use prolonged exposure with those memories where you actually expose yourself to the memory and tell the story over and over with a therapist or there are some workbooks that can help you work through that. It, like Josh was saying, to help retrain your amygdala and the part of your brain not to set off the fire alarm every time you have that memory. Um, there's also cognitive processing therapy, which is where you challenge your thinking about it. Um, thoughts like, I can't handle it, bad things will happen to me, I'm doomed, all those kinds of things can be challenged as well. 
Yeah, you can. Do, uh, there's also EMDR therapy, which is um, the theory behind eye movement desensitization. Something I can't remember. Uh, it's when they replicate the uh, the very process of REM sleep. Uh, so obviously, when you um, when you go to sleep, there's you have the dreaming part, which is the rapid eye movement. And again, when I said trauma memories are are kind of um, <clears throat> dislodged and then when we sleep REM sleep kind of puts memories away and, and uh, uh, EMDR looks at kind of processing that and that's actually got empirical evidence to back it up um, more so than even actually just even just exposing it because actually some exposure therapy to some traumatic memories does not work mm -hmm. the trauma mm -hmm. just keeps happening with no progress um, but you, there, there is ways you could do it um, again, if you want to, if you're traumatized and you want to read about it, read Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, is I prefer mm -hmm. that book to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's other stuff there, but um, yeah, I mean, if if you if you're on the PTSD route, read those books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Drake, I can't really add much to that. It's you know, I'm learning. I'm learning more than answering right now, so yeah. it's good. Um, do you want to, uh, Drew, do you have questions from the community? Yeah, yeah, sure. I got some questions. I got a couple of good ones, I think. Excellent. Uh, of course, let me get back to them. No, they're terrible questions, but I'll <laughs> ask them anyway. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is good. I mean, it's not the thing that we usually talk about, but <clears throat> I think it's a good question. Um, actually, I see that she's here. Panic disorder and agoraphobia for 12 plus years. I'm currently tapering off a medication and it is awful in every way. Should I wait until I'm off the medication and done having withdrawals from that medication to start my exposure work? It's actually a really common question. So I'm curious what the two of you guys, Josh and Kim, would say to a client in that situation. I think that's a really good question. <laughs> it is. And it get, I hear it all the time. I mean, I would say it just depends on you. I'm really, um, I'm a therapist who often will not give my own opinion on what someone should do and just to say, what, what kind of recovery do you want to have, right? So you could do both. There is no harm to doing both. Um, and you could switch between the two. I think what you want to look at is, number one, um, if you wait, that, you know, there's a pro and con to everything, right? I talk a lot with that with my patients. So the pro of starting now is you get to get on the, you know, you get to your recovery on the road. The con is you're also dealing with physical sensations that maybe are really uncomfortable and can be really painful and, and, and str you can struggle with. Um, so there's pros and cons to both decisions. There's nothing, there's no right or wrong about it. I think it's more of that matter of what are your values? What, you know, how willing are you going to be to be uncomfortable and have other discomforts? Um, I'm always going to encourage you to, to do an exposure under all situations, right? Because we know based on, um, you know, learning that the, the greater context you have in terms of doing your exposures, the longer your recovery is and the reduction of relapse you have. So if you can do an exposure while feeling nauseous, while feeling tired, while being hormonal, while being hungry, while being, you know, annoyed with such and such your coworker. If you can do them under all these different circumstances, you actually have a reduced chance of relapse. Why is she starting the exposure after coming off the medication? Or, or did she do it and then she's... Um, 
taken a pause because of the symptoms of withdrawal, then she's going to do it again. I, I think she's asking what should she wait? I don't know if she's made a decision yet. If she's in the middle of the withdrawal now and wanting to know, well, should I just wait for it to be over before I start actually working on the exposure stuff? I, I, I think it doesn't. I think it doesn't matter. I think I echo what Kimberly said. I think that's absolutely fine. You, you know, Dean and I talk about all the time. You know, like graded exposure versus um, flooding exposure. But what I really liked was. Um, a comment just in the comments that section then which was actually withdrawal is exposure in mm. itself um and yeah. so therefore yeah wait i mean just do a bit like just do a bit of time like i'm, I'm afraid to get the covid vaccine because i got um, but like i will get it you know uh, uh but like i've got that anticipatory anxiety but i've also at the moment got a bit of a cough myself so i'm going to wait until the cough's finished before i go and get the vaccine just to make my life easier you know, I could argue, oh, why don't you just do it all at once? You can cope, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But you could just take things a little bit at a time. You know, that's your choice. You mm. just not pass and fail. Is that avoidance? Avoid it? No, it's just making my life easier. Mm. You know, it is. It's making my life. I know I'll do it. That's the thing. If I'm doing, if you're just going to avoid full stop and you, you know it's an excuse to avoid, then it's different, but when when you know you're just going to do it, but you're just going to make it easier. That's I for me, I think that's fine. Avoidance is only a problem if it's repetitive, in my opinion, right? So yeah, absolutely, um, I think yeah, and I agree with that. Actually, no, I disagree with that because that's what the crowd has asked us to do. <laughs> we, we need to disagree sometimes. I, I would, uh, um, I live that experience, right? So I'll answer my own question I asked. I lived it and I've documented it to my first book and I have three podcast episodes and series that talk about it. The con the comment, which is brilliant because it's what I was going to say that that withdrawal is exposure is dead on. So my advice as somebody who has lived that and actually interacted with a lot of people who also have lived that is use that because that's what you're in right now. And if you ever need to learn lessons about tolerating things that you cannot control, that will effing teach them to you because you cannot control what's going on. You can't make it better. You can't make it go away. Only time does that. So the lessons that you can learn from the withdrawal process in terms of just accepting, allowing, tolerating, and navigating the best you can, I did not find an experience that taught me any better than going through that. Time was the only thing that was going to fix it. So I learned the difference between pain and suffering. I learned the choices that I had in dealing with, with adversity. So you don't have to go out and start walking around the block or driving or going to the frozen food section in the supermarket. If you're being challenged by the withdrawal process itself and how it feels, use that. If you want to do the other work too, then there's nothing wrong with that. There's, that's totally fine. But don't discount. Don't just sit and wait passively for it to be over. Use it as a learning experience because it's going to teach you a lot of lessons. That will help you with the other stuff. Right. Can I give a personal experience here? <clears throat> sure. Um, so I'm actually currently in a withdrawal myself um, because I've been ill and they've decided to take me off a medication. There's something important to know here, which is if you're talking to your doctor about those withdrawals, there are things you can do to help with those withdrawals. So I'm on a drug right now to help me with my withdrawal to another drug that that if you're under the care of a doctor not that i'm pushing medication here but you know there are nausea medications and things that can help you 
like Josh was saying, that allow you to just continue your daily life without you going through this major, you know, difficult medical situation. So speak with your doctor about the withdrawal symptoms and if there's something you can do to help sort of mitigate that. Great answer. All right. I'm going to you, know what, let me, I have to, I got to throw this in because like I'm sort of like the SSRI withdrawal guy. Kim's advice is really good, but just be prepared when you do talk to your doctor about withdrawal, there's a very good chance your doctor will say, this is your chemical imbalance, just go back on the medication. So in, in the case of antidepressant withdrawal, there's a really good chance that the doctor's gonna, not gonna say, oh, you're nauseous, let's try Zofran or something. They may say, well, this is, you know, you gotta be back on the meds, or you're, you're withdrawing from, from Paxil or Lexapro, so let me give you Wellbutrin and they just give you a different antidepressant and you wind up on this polydrugged merry-go-round. So you just have to be aware that that's a very, very common occurrence when people ask for medical help with antidepressant withdrawal. Yeah. Just be aware of it, that that could be suggested. Yeah, and, and, and doctors, aren't, doctors don't know in general a lot about anxiety disorders. You might find a rare one that does, um, yeah. but not to slander doctors, but actually that's where you know you better than anyone and if you feel that you want to come off something or try something listen to you first because actually you, you got you listen to your body you listen to those things um i trust my doctor with obviously literally with my life when it comes to anything physical but when it came to disordered anxiety he knew absolutely nothing nothing uh and not not to criticize him they've got to learn everything physical and mental like not chance <laughs> Going to doctor about anxiety is like going. To that's really good. It's so sad, isn't it? That that's the case. It's so sad that we're still in that situation. I mean, we're not we're talking there, about right? rare disorders. We're talking about, you know, one in four one in people. Four. A one it's in like, four. Exactly. Right. It's it's it blows my mind that doctors are not you know trained for this. Especially yeah, when they, especially when they try. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, especially when they try and push the medication route first, almost like a quick fix. I think that's mm. horrendous. Absolutely. That's a, that's a topic we could probably talk about for hours. I know I can, but uh, anyway, uh, we'll go to the next question. This is a good question too. How can we best approach the subject or explain our agoraphobia, agoraphobia for the guys in the top two of the screen, um, to our children? What would, you, what would you say to your kids about being agoraphobic? Can I, you? Can I answer? Yeah. Oh, Dean, Dean, you answer <laughs> About you being it or about if they were experiencing it? No, I, I think she's talking about she's dealing with agoraphobia and how should she explain that to her kids when they see her going through that? It's a good question. No, it's a great question. Yeah, psychoeducation my, um, myself would be. Um, and I'd, I'd just be open and honest about what I was going through. It all depends on the age of the children as well because if they were a bit older, they might even be able to help the situation. Um, but, yeah. Don't try it. and uh, Just try and explain it to them in a way that they understand it as well. Don't, don't try and get all scientific on, on a four-year-old, I imagine. Um, yeah, just break it down and, and be as honest as possible and just say, I'm, I'm going to be going through uh, having these weird symptoms sometimes. So if I go quiet, it's nothing to do with you. It's just, it's just anxiety 101. I like Kim, to explain oh, it in a way that's just in one sentence. I'm afraid to lose control outside of my safe zone. 
that safe zone could be a home, the Agora, which is Greek for supermarket, which is why even now people going to the grocery store supermarkets are, are terrified. Is it really <laughs> Greek? The open market, Agora is the marketplace, right? Oh, right. And, and yet, even now, so in Walmart or Asda, um, you people are afraid to go, and it's the very same fear that's been around for thousands of years. That's why I love the word agoraphobia. Yeah, it's the fear of losing control outside of a safe zone, and try and do a better definition than that. <laughs> Great. Anyone else? Kim, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what would you say to your kids? Um, anxiety doesn't, doesn't exist. Shut up, mither and me. Go out yeah, there. You'll be They're fine. You'll be fine. Pull Rump yourself up your Get back in the game. I'm withdrawing from right. crack. Leave me alone. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let me give you um, an, an opposing view of it. Um, not that it's a disagree at all with what Josh is saying, but... Um, I really believe the ability to model to our children and give, make it be a lesson. Um, I really believe in, in us um, not – see, this is where I would say, and, and I may be not be in popular view here, is um, it really depends on why you're explaining it. If you're explaining it to your children so that they have to accept it, well, then you may want to seek some treatment about that, Right. Um, because we don't want to, it's just, I think I said this last week, I don't want to explain something to my partner so that, that my partner can then accommodate my disorder, right? Um, I wouldn't suggest that. It, it's, it will happen, and there's no shame if that, if that is the case. But if you're in treatment for agoraphobia and you're really wanting to, um, to work through it with your kids, and we've, we do this with our children all the time, is model to them when you are scared and tell them how you're being scared and how you're planning to face it. That is modeling to, number one, a child who, if we have a, a medical, I mean, excuse me, an anxiety disorder, they have a good chance of having an anxiety disorder of their own. So the more in the early age you can model to them how we deal with anxiety in our family, um, that can be incredibly powerful. Um, so I would, I would, if you're in treatment or you're wanting to be in treatment, when you're doing something, you might say to them, mom, my mommy has, you know, mommy has a, 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 the fire alarm got set off in her brain. Sometimes her brain makes a mistake. Would you like to do a brave thing with mommy today? Let's take one step outside the front door. Would you do that with me? Can we get a sticker for every time you and mommy do it together? You're modeling to yourself and you're modeling to them how to handle fear. And, and that can be beneficial for everybody. Brilliant answer. That's good. Yeah. I have, um, in a couple of weeks, Jackie Bogdanov is at child behavior doc here on Instagram. And she's on the podcast and we actually talked about this exact thing. She had some really good things to say about that. One of the things is that the need for kids not to be alarmed by when they see, they look to us for, you know, yeah. is everything okay? So it's really, I think, important. And I had to do this to make sure that like, well, you could see me in distress, but I need to make sure you know that like, this is like Kim was saying, it's a false alarm. Everything is okay. I'm a little bit afraid right now, but that's okay. We're going to work on that. So yeah. that's, that's really important. Mm -hmm. What I did was my kids were six and four. I just threw the DSM at them. I said, you figure it out what's wrong with them. And uh, yeah, it worked out pretty well. Tough little bright up. So anyway, all right, ne next question. Uh, let's see here. This is a tough one, but it, I, I think it's a good one for us to, to answer. 
This woman says her husband, unfortunately, has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. The kids are grown and out of the house, and she's never lived alone. How can I prepare myself now for a future with no safe person? So it's a safe person question, clearly under horrible circumstances. But, uh, you know, what advice would we give her to start to deal with that, that issue of needing a safe person around? Mm. So I, I'll jump in and, and be curious to see what you guys say. So my first, you know, of course, first, I'm just sending you such compassion and empathy for what you're going through. I think it's important that we recognize that as a human race, we are not supposed to be living as independent as we are. We, you know, we were, we thrive best in large communities and small villages. Um, and so what I would encourage you to do here is, um, this is sort of where you gather your people, right? And, and that doesn't have to be just friends. It could be people you pay. It could be people that you, you know, there are certain um, services that you can get through different countries have different government services to help with people who are going through this. And another really important thing is to make sure you're in some kind of grief group to help with this process. The more community you can build, the more little baby steps you'll, you know, you'll get back on your feet. Um, and, and I think with time and with support, you, you will 100% be able to do that. So I would just first encourage to make sure you have a community and do not isolate. I really like the idea of the grief uh, group. Just the other day I, I was um, on Facebook just looking and I came across a, a grief group, a, a, a horrific story of someone losing um, a daughter, but it was just, it was just, amazing and almost tear-jerking to see other people who've been through exactly the same situation for themselves um, being able to offer a hand of support so yeah it was amazing to see uh, absolutely echoing the sentiment from from kimberly and dean but um let's let's cut to the chase you know if, if you're messaging drew you're messaging it from maybe the perspective of disordered anxiety and drew said before disordered anxiety sometimes has a mind of its own how will this affect me well of course it's grief and that's going to affect you in its own way i know i've i've met i've lost family members are very open about it um grief affects you in its own way but then the disordered anxiety has its own kind of uh, what ifs and that what if is what if you can't cope on your own mm -hmm. And here's the thing, you can cope on your own and you will find out that you can cope on your own and it will make you doubt that. Obviously, you're not on your own, you're not lonely, but in the sense of the kind of the end of the relationship dynamic, that will be an extra worry on top of your grief. What if I can't cope now I've lost my partner? And so what I would say to you is that you can, you will, and you will learn and grow stronger from it. And you'll realize that you were stronger than you thought of that whole time. Don't get me wrong, people can make us feel safe. I have people in my life that make us, me feel safe. It's not about going lone wolf, but you can still function on your own. And that's what I would, that's what I would say to them. Mm. Love it, it's good. Brilliant, mm. Josh, did you manage to find any questions? Yeah, there was one um, that, I, that I, someone asked me the other day, they said, um, What's the difference between 
obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessing about anxiety? I like that question. It can be both. It can be both. I guess we go to you, Kim, for that one. Well, so um, obsessing about obsessing is a subtype of OCD. Um, so, so think about. I did not know that. Obsessing. You'll about... need it in your intrusive thoughts. Oh, oh I'm going to pull up a cue here. So, <laughs> under the umbrella of OCD are specific subtypes of OCD. They involve an obsession and a compulsion. So, an obsession is a thought, feeling, sensation, image, or urge that creates anxiety and is repetitive, right? Or uncertainty. Maybe they can also create some, some emotions such as disgust, right? Um, and then there's a compulsion, which is the behavior in, what you do, in which you do to remove or reduce that feeling. Um, under that umbrella are specific subtypes. So the content of the obsession is different. One of them is obsessing about obsessing, which is the fear that you'll never stop obsessing. Um, it's a very common subtype of OCD. But as we've talked about in previous recovery rooms, think of it like on a spectrum, generalized anxiety is on the spectrum of, of OCD as well. They're different disorders. They have different diagnoses and the treatment is somewhat different and somewhat the same. Um, oops, sorry, somebody's outside my house. <laughs> he liked the comment. <laughs> um, but so, you know, generalized anxiety could be obsessing about fear in and of itself, right? So I think that um, it could be, um, you know, it could be social anxiety. Social anxiety is the fear of having fear in social situations. Um, so, so diagnostically, it can look different. Um, it could be one or both. Um, it depends on you'd have to do a formal assessment. Would there be an element of, you know, is the difference between obsessing about anxiety and actually OCD? Wouldn't it be the compulsion possibly? Because I'm surrounded by people who are worried that they're not ever going to get better or that panic disorder yeah. or phobia, whatever it is. They're worried they're not going to get better, but it doesn't drive them into compulsive behavior. Whereas yes, there are some people who will start to exhibit compulsive recovery behavior. They yeah, must constantly be recovering. So the thing to remember you think it is will that ultimately get there? Well, the thing to remember love, is that love there a spicy are many... question. <laughs> yeah, the thing to rem remember is that a compulsion is not just physical, it can be mental as well. One yeah. of the most common mental compuls compulsions are mental. And then one of the most difficult to detect, the most difficult to treat. Um, and people with generalized anxiety do mental compulsions. Can you give um, any examples of that for the people listening? Mm -hmm. So there are multiple different types of mental compulsions. One could be um, just purely reviewing. What happened? Did this happen? Could it happen? You know, will it happen? Just mentally going over it. There are also mental compulsions where people mentally check, right? They check. Am I, am I anxious? Am I recovering? One of my right? biggest compulsions. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Some people mentally count. So they may count as they do things. That's more of a, an OCD like symmetry kind of um, compulsion. Um, there are, you know, there's mental praying. That's for people with scrupulosity and moral obsessions. So that's just a small handful of different kind of mental compulsions. The most common being just rumination. Just could I, would I, should I, would I, do I want to, all of that kind of thing. But is that OCD or is that panic slash anxiety disorder? They all, all of the anxiety, that's why they're under the umbrella. Now we conceptualize all of those disorders under the umbrella of OCD. Not that they have OCD, but they all have an obsession and a compulsion, right? Very now to have, 
to have OCD, you have to have a specific criteria of diagnoses checked off, right? Two hours a day. It's impacting your quality of life. But people with generalized anxiety have that too. And that's why you have to have someone who can, can assess you and be able to differentiate to get you the correct diagnosis. Just before we finish, uh, Kim, I've had a lot of people who deal with OCD um, who always, so many of them have said that therapists have told them that you can't recover from OCD. Um, is that true? And what's the reason they're being told that, do you think? Well, the, I think the main issue there is what is the definition of recover? If you think, if you're saying that recovery means you never have an intrusive thought, feeling sensation or urge again, well, then probably not because people who don't have OCD are going to have those in their lifetime. But um, so, so recovery, it really, it does depend on what your definition is. It, my definition of recovery for OCD is you're still having some thoughts. You're able, you've got skills to tolerate them. You don't implement compulsions to manage your anxiety um, or your obsession. Um, I, I have many, many patients who go off to live incredible lives right where ocd doesn't impact their life they still have intrusive thoughts though but they're not as strong and they're not as um problematic right let me just close my door um so absolutely you can absolutely recover from ocd i agree fantastic i feel like i'm auditing a class this is awesome just want to hang around for another hour and let kim talk <laughs> i don't know if you have time there, but kim, kim like for me it's like Anyone who's had OCD has a trait of their personality, and I, I call it the fixator, which isn't actually in the in the dictionaries, but I will put it there. And it's like, a, like kind of like, he's, we, I have this part of my personality. I drew, will, Dean will, you will. It's that anyone who develops these kind of disorders or this type of anxiety, it's a part of your personality where you fixate on stuff. Now, that is a fantastic part of your personality that you should be proud of because when you fixate on good shit, good stuff happens. When you fixate on projects or anything creative, you fixate and, 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 and things blossom, you know, and, and that's wonderful. So if you're, uh, that will help you at work, it will help you solve day-to-day -day problems or things that need kind of medium to long-term attention. However, what you've got to remind yourself is that if you've got a fixating personality, if you're a fixator and that latches onto stuff that has no answers, you can end up on the hamster wheel of seeking certainty and you end up wasting and spending many hours like I have doing stuff. So don't ever, when the OCD isn't affecting you, that means you're back to you. You have your fixator personality and you celebrate that. But it becomes OCD, in my opinion, I don't know what you think, Kimberly, but it becomes OCD, in my opinion, when suddenly it latches on to something that doesn't have clear answers or solutions. Yeah, OCD will pick anything, right? It can target anything, um, you know, usually the thing you love the most and value the most. Um, and and yeah. yes, it, huh? Sorry, beer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can. Like, it really could. I've had clients who, who their whole obsession is, will I become an addict because I enjoy drinking beer, you know? So it really, really, like no jokes aside, it can take on any subject and any content. Um, the, the differentiating factors between these different disorders are um, they have a lot of nuance. 
and it, it's all, but the good news is, is the treatment is much the same for all of them. Um, and so, you know, it, yes, it, to go back to your original question is, um, many different disorders have a component where they obsess over whether the feeling or the thought will go away. Excellent. Uh, what my counselor advised me to give anxiety a name. Anxiety Annie comes out. What do, what do people think of that? Love it. I like anxiety. Anxiety. Josh. Mine's anxiety. Josh. Get out of here, anxiety. Josh. Get lost. Get get out of my. Get out of here, man. Stop it. Yeah. Stop stealing my plants, anxiety. Josh. Get away. Stop. <laughs> Sorry. In in the Stop treatment of, in in the treatment of kids, we as when I was trained, we were strongly encouraged. We strongly encouraged children to give their anxiety a name or their OCD a name. Um, we encourage them to draw it, and we and we have a narrative where we teach them how to talk to it, um, so that they learn how to set boundaries with it. So you know, from a from a clinical standpoint, that can be really effective. I have lots of adults who give their diagnosis a name, right? Eating disorders, they give their, you know, Edna and, you know, that kind of thing. Eating disorder, Josh, um, the different eating disorder name. <laughs> I, that would be my life complete. If I can get a disorder named after me, I could, <laughs> I could go to the grave quite happy knowing yeah. that my name is associated with something that pro pro provides prolonged misery and suffering. Oh, be, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, that, that's before, a worthy goal right there just before we go I forgot to introduce our recovery room troll I don't know if any of you guys have seen him in the background oh, I saw it. Wait, 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 wait. he's here he's yeah here. No. I'm really disappointed he came he in he said you were selling poison yeah. yeah he is I love oh. I saw him yeah yeah, every time our troll comes on, we can now point to to the head troll. Just dance it in front yeah, of the screen. Just dance him in front. Yeah. So, yeah. Like a cowbell to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a cowbell. <laughs> so, guys, um, just before we go, have you, um, have you got any projects, or are you working on anything this week? Um, and where everyone can find you, Kim. Uh, I am on Kimberly Quinlan here on Instagram. I am at Your Anxiety Toolkit, the podcast. And if you're wanting online courses for OCD or some free resources and free trainings for OCD, you can go to cbtschool.com. Fantastic. Um, have you got anything up the, this week? Any any podcasts or anything? The podcast this week is on shame. It's like one of my favorite topics. So um, has been much requested. So yeah, that's what we're talking about this week on the podcast. Fantastic. Um, Josh? Um, find me, Anxiety Josh. My podcast is called The Panic Pod. Uh, my next guest will be Kimberly Quinlan and we'll be talking about emetophobia. Um, I know her. You know it. Oh, good. Well, I you know her. Metaphobia. I've never met anyone called a metaphobia. What a lovely, what a lovely name. It's my dog's name. <laughs> Emmett. Uh, get here. Uh, and uh, and um, yeah, you can find uh, uh, the Dean and I have a book out, Untangle Your Anxiety. It's a bestseller in Canada, America, the UK, and so probably some countries you've never heard of because it's a United, great book. United States. What was it? The United UAE. Arab Emirates. Yes. 
they're amazing. loving it over there. Dubai. Yeah, yeah they're, they're loving it over there. Um, and yeah, also, uh, it's, it's in all the universities, well, most of the universities in the UK as well, which is yeah, crazy. If, here's the thing. if you can't afford the book, go to your library and get them to order it in for you. That's what we've done at universities. And we've got yeah. that resource for you if you want to check it out there. You know, we're not that cold and heartless and just want your money to buy shiny things. Just put it in a library, you know, yeah. educate yourself. Mm. <laughs> Um, All proceeds for the book sales go to buy troll dolls. Most people don't know that. <laughs> that cost me 15 quid it though. Oh, wow. Damn. Oh, wow. Big spender. But it's so yeah, cute. Uh, Drew, Drew, um, are you working what podcasts are right this week and where can everyone find you? Uh, this week's podcast, which came out on, on uh, two days ago, is on anxiety surrounding death and existential issues. And that's that's going over great for such a dark topic um and what else i'm still writing but we'll talk about that later and if you go so you can find me here at the.anxious.truth and on my website theanxioustruth.com is a link to all the podcast episodes and right on the homepage is a you can is a free one hour workshop that i did that kind of takes you through the whole start to finish recovery thing so you get some idea what direction you should point so take advantage of that it's totally free man it's right on the homepage. So. and you've put the podcast on um youtube now as well haven't you yeah, in fact, this is super exciting because this weekend we will actually catch up. It's been six months of posting five old podcast episodes every week, and this week we will actually catch up. So all of the podcast episodes will be on my YouTube channel, which is linked on the website. Go to theanxioustruth.com. Everything is there. Are we still doing the anxiety radio thing? We are. Now, so, I'm, yes, I'm, we'll be working on to Ella today. I'm going to give you all the things to have anxiety FM or whatever it is we're doing. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, anxietyradio.live. So, yeah, we are working on that. So we have some more podcasts that we're up, updating this weekend and starting to talk. I actually have a friend of mine who's starting to help me with it. So, yeah, so Josh, send me all your audio files and we'll start putting your deal. stuff up there. Yeah. I need to. I yeah, yeah, it's all good. That's such a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. yeah we have people listening to it. Yeah. We'll get the recovery room yeah. on there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll rip the audio and put them up there. That would be amazing. Fantastic. <clears throat> okay. Right, guys, enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for uh, popping by. Thank you. Later, so fun. Thank Have you. a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at DLC Anxiety. Check our website at DLCAnxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.